Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. In this week's episode of This Week in Business History, we'll be learning a lesson that centers around a vote that took place in the U.S. Senate on October 28, 1919. On this day, senators voted to override President Woodrow Wilson's veto of the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution which defined the processes and procedures for banning the production, distribution, and possession of alcoholic beverages. Since the House of Representatives had already voted in favor of the bill, the Volstead Act became law. Remembered today as simply prohibition, this vote set the country down the path to trying to be a dry nation until the 21st Amendment was passed in 1933. Prohibition, also known as the Great Social Experiment, was the culmination of years of fighting between the wets and the dries. When the dries won out, the clock started ticking on an alcohol-free America. The intentions of Prohibition were mostly good. Some early state-level laws were put in place during World War I to ensure that there would be sufficient grains available to feed people versus being used to brew beer and distill alcohol. Violence and domestic abuse were also among the concerns cited by members of the temperance movement. Good intentions notwithstanding, there were quite a few unexpected consequences of this legislation, starting with its definition of intoxicating liquor. Any beverage containing half a percent or more alcohol by volume was outlawed, and the 18th Amendment superseded all existing prohibition laws in effect in states that had such legislation. So if you lived in a state where prohibition had been passed, but defined intoxicating liquor as containing 1% alcohol by volume or more, this new law affected you. By comparison, Canadian prohibition laws set the limit at 2.5%, so the U.S. federal limit was exceptionally low. It was so low that it shocked, and also dismayed, some of the people who had originally supported its passage. Since we all know how this story ends, I won't worry about issuing spoiler alerts. It was pretty clear from the outset that the Volstead Act was going to be a messy law to enforce. Prohibition officially took effect when the calendar turned to January 17, 1920, and it took less than an hour for the first documented infringement. Unsurprisingly, the infringement, as it were, took place in Chicago a city that would spend most of Prohibition being torn apart by organized crime. 
Actually, here's a funny side fact. Al Capone, one of the most notorious Prohibition-era gangsters, well, his birthday was on January 17th. So they started enforcing Prohibition on his birthday. No wonder he ended up on the wrong side of the law. The establishment of organized crime is one of the big things most of us associate with Prohibition. And it was big business. If you have people, you have crime. But this was the first time they had an incentive to organize. The mob bosses saw that the more organized they could be, the more territory they could hold, and the more money they could make. This was not a haphazard effort. They hired lawyers, accountants, brewmasters, boat captains, truckers, and warehouse workers. They paid off prohibition officers, judges, politicians, and policemen. They even bought legal breweries that had been forced to close and hired experienced brewers to run them. They ran boats out into oceans and lakes to buy liquor from abroad and paid individual citizens to operate home stills. You might say that organized crime was fully vertically integrated during Prohibition. While it was a noble social experiment, Prohibition also had a significant impact on the business world, and that wasn't totally unexpected. In fact, economists had predicted that the money previously spent on alcohol would be reallocated to other kinds of goods and services in a way that would improve people's lives. There were projections that crime would go down and real estate value would go up. Nearly every industry was counting the money that was about to come rolling in. Luxury items such as gum and soft drinks were expected to be very popular, and movie theaters braced for the crowds that would push through their doors. But none of that came to pass. Instead, the closures of breweries, distilleries, and liquor stores put thousands of people out of work. The Bureau of Internal Revenue estimated that prohibition caused the shutdown of over 200 distilleries, 1,000 breweries, and over 170,000 liquor stores. The industry had been the fifth or sixth biggest overall employer in the country until then. Some estimates say that a quarter of a million people lost their jobs. The country was already in a mild recession and would go into full recession, the Great Depression, for the last four years of Prohibition. And the employment hit wasn't just felt in production. The whole supply chain took a hit. Barrel makers, truckers, cork makers, glass manufacturers, and waiters were out of work as well. Funny how people don't want to go to nightclubs and dance halls if they can't have a sip of liquid courage before hitting the dance floor. But one person's loss is another person's gain. You can hardly blame moonshiners and bootleggers for stepping in to pick up on the opportunity. You might even say it's the American way. And the Volstead Act had plenty of loopholes big enough to pass a keg through. For instance, pharmacists were allowed to dispense whiskey as a medicinal treatment. $40 million worth of medicinal whiskey prescriptions were given out by some estimates. So bootleggers set up pharmacies as the front for their illegal liquor operations. Unfortunately for the quote-unquote common man, this was a very expensive way to wet your whistle, and so only the wealthiest Americans could access liquor by this means. But then there were churches. Yes, churches. They were still allowed to obtain and use wine for religious purposes as part of communion. Talk about a way to fill the pews. 
Some priests and rabbis even became bootleggers. A 1925 report by the Department of Research and Education of the Federal Council of the Churches of Christ reported that, quote, there is no way of knowing what the legitimate consumption of fermented sacramental wine is, but it is clear that the legitimate demand does not increase 800,000 gallons in two years. Well, at least they knew their addressable market. Prohibition was a bad move from the government's perspective as well. The federal government lost approximately $11 billion in tax revenue and had to shell out more than $300 million trying to enforce the Volstead Act. Meanwhile, the bootleg market saw $3.6 billion worth of earnings in 1926 alone. That's approximately $50 billion today. To put it in further context, $3.6 billion was almost the same amount as the annual federal budget at the time. So all of the bootleggers put together had as much money at their disposal as the U.S. government. The tax revenue implications make for an interesting side story on prohibition. The government knew that revenue was going to be an issue. So as much as there had been cries for prohibition for a long time, it wasn't even a consideration until there was a replacement for the tax revenue. 40% of the federal government's tax revenue was drawn from liquor-related industries in the early 20th century. But in 1913, the 16th Amendment created the federal income tax. Talk about a lousy move. More taxes and no booze. In fact, it is probably not a coincidence that prohibition was ended just four years into the Great Depression. Between the need for jobs and the need for tax revenue, little else except maybe a Second World War was going to be able to insert the shock that the United States economy needed. If there is one thing we can be sure of, it is that prohibition didn't stop anyone from making, selling, or consuming alcohol. There were speakeasies everywhere, and bathtub gin swept the country. Without safety standards and regulation, many people became ill or even died from consuming unsafe home-brewed liquor. Now, even the Senate, who passed the Volstead Act, had a bootlegger of their own. The man in the green hat, as he was known then, was George Cassidy. He was Congress's primary bootlegger, and yes, he made deliveries. How's that for a DoorDash? He would carry his glass bottles of illegal gin over and deliver them to Senate and House offices personally. For five years he operated without any problems, until one day a Capitol Police officer stopped him and placed him under arrest. Did the Green Hat incident stop George? Nope. But he did move his office to another building so that he could continue operating for another five years. Part of the challenge of prohibition stemmed from the enormous cost of enforcement. As I've already mentioned, the government spent $300 million in the effort. But that money was spent across the country over a decade or more. Prohibition officers, or revenuers as they were also known, were very poorly paid. I'm sure it comes as no surprise that many of them were on the take, accepting payoffs to look the other way. Now this undermined both the enforcement of prohibition and also public trust for government regulators. Prohibition lasted for 13 years. By the time it was repealed, 
the whole industry had been decimated. Knowledge loss around mixing cocktails and making wine was almost complete. Equipment and facilities had been destroyed. Other than having lots of backwoods stills and bathtubs, the industry had to start over. But there were other lasting effects as well. Drinking used to be something you went out to do. During prohibition, out of necessity, it became something people did at home. This break from beer is often cited as the source of Americans' preference for pale beer, relatively bland when compared to the ales and stouts of Europe. Interestingly, Americans drank just about the same amount of alcohol today as they did before prohibition. And one industry in particular did thrive, restaurants. Saloons were known for serving liquor, but they were also a source of quick meals. Locations that were opened to be food first tripled during Prohibition, leading to a corresponding change in American eating habits. The shift was especially marked in urban neighborhoods, with luncheonettes, cafeterias, and soda fountains popping up everywhere to serve middle and lower class workers quick, affordable meals. Prohibition did not work, but it is part of our history, like it or not. It offers us a number of valuable lessons about social legislation, government enforcement, and tax policy. Not to mention appreciation for the fact that life is just a little sweeter with a sip of wine, a clink of beer mugs, or a freshly handcrafted cocktail to mark a special moment. On that note, it is time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, This is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.